Nehemiah chapter 6. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecophirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin and so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the war was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah there were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshalim, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And... They also spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faith, a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. 
Appoint the guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Turning to Revelation now, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word to us. Father in heaven, strengthen our minds to hear and receive this word this morning. Strengthen our hearts to be challenged, encouraged, and comforted all at once by your word. Strengthen our hands as we engage with your word with our lives. We ask all of this for your glory and our joy in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of and what do your fears stop you from doing? If you have acrophobia, fear of heights, I'm sure you've probably never gone bungee jumping or skydiving. If you have arachnophobia, there is no photo up there for the benefit of my wife, the fear of spiders, then I'm sure you haven't spent much time going out of your way to search for and cuddle a spider or even watch the YouTube videos Lucas the Spider. My wife just could not handle that. But what about other fears that have bigger impacts? A fear of failure. So you stop trying and you live with a constant sense that you're not good enough. A fear of people. So you live your life to people please. Fears come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Something about them strikes at our very hearts, sometimes going so deep that they come out in our lives in physical reactions, sweating, trembling, accelerated heartbeats, chest pains, to name a few. Fear operates at our most basic instinctual levels. When we come up against fear, there tends to be two main reactions that people tend to speak about, fight or flight. You put up your fists and you get ready to attack back or, which may not be that helpful if the enemy is a lion, or you run away and hopefully save your life for another day. See, in today's passage, we'll see Nehemiah wrestle with fear, but we'll see him face up to it in in a different way. He doesn't fight against this fear with fists and a sword, and he doesn't just rely on his own self-courage to get him through. This is not a chapter on self-help, nor does he just simply run away to live another day. Today, we see, we see fear faced with fear, a different kind of fear, the fear of God. Today's main point is that fear threatens the work of God, but fails when God is trusted above all. And we're going to see what that trust looks like and how fearing God 
is at the centre of it. Now, before we get into the text, someone will ask me, what about loving God? Isn't God a God of love? Aren't we called to love God? And the answer, of course, is yes. But like two sides of a coin, fearing God goes hand in hand with loving God. Now, the wonderful news of the gospel is that God has shown us his incredible love and we are called to love him. But today, we're focusing on that other side of the coin to understand what it means to fear God, and especially when there are many things that would make us afraid and stop following God. As we get into our passage uh, today, remember that Nehemiah occurs after the return of the exiles. Israel, uh, in a rebuilding process, their lives and their cities were in ruins. Nehemiah recognises that one of the key things that must be accomplished is the rebuilding of the wall that surrounds the city. It must be repaired and rebuilt. The wall would provide security to this city on a hill. Without it, they were sitting ducks. And so over the last few chapters, Nehemiah has been setting about rebuilding the wall. And with the help of a whole bunch of people from diverse backgrounds, work has steadily gone underway. And then we meet in our passage this morning, two men, Sanballat and Tobiah. We've met them before, all the way back in chapter four. In chapter four, they were not happy at all with this wall, but they couldn't stop it back then. So now they turn to desperation and trickery. The Jews are rebuilding, but they also have swords strapped to their sides while they are laying bricks. And so now, knowing that they can't overcome the Jews by force, they try a different tactic. See in verse 2 that Sambalat and Geshem send him an invitation. Meet with us at Hakaferim in the plain of Ono. Why there? Maybe to have a chat, but that seems highly unlikely. At the end of verse 2, Nehemiah perceives that they intend to do him harm. This is no diplomatic conversation. And so Nehemiah basically replies with, no thanks. I am way too busy with this good work to come down and meet with you. Sambalat and Geshem are persistent. They send him four more invitations and Nehemiah is just as persistent and replies in the same way four times. Four seems like a lot of, you know, back and forth. But remember that Sambalat and Nehemiah are both kind of governors of their region. Sambalat up north in Samaria and uh, uh, Nehemiah down here in Judah. And so they are playing this kind of political game with the letters. And then in verse five, Sambalat has kind of had enough. And this time he sends an open letter. Now, to get why that's important, you have to know that most private correspondence uh, was sent with a seal, kind of those kind of wax seals that you see on letters. Uh, So the only recipient could break the seal and read what was actually contained in the letter. But an open letter did not have a seal. An open letter assumed that the messenger would read it and anyone else who wanted to read it could get to read it. So sending an open letter was a calculated act by Sanballat. The content of the letter is super clear in verses 6 and 7. Read with me again verses 6 and 7. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. According to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. 
What he's accusing Nehemiah of is rebuilding this wall so he can set himself up as the king. If everyone got to read this, and, if, and as it was being delivered, then the rumor mills would begin working overtime. And if rumors got back to Persia, the power of the day, then this would not be taken lightly. I remember something like this happening back in my uni days. It was the election time for the student union and the law faculty uh, members. And I remember walking into a lecture theater and found an anonymous flyer on the seat outlining out there right in the open for everyone to read, detailing how the current treasurer and president of the law faculty had messed up financially. They obviously also used a lot more colorful language to describe this mess up. I found out later that it was all a complete lie. But in a world before social media, how were you going to fact check all of this? How was everyone going to fact check all of this? The accusation was out there. It could not be taken back. Same thing here with Nehemiah. The accusation is now out there. How is he going to respond? Nehemiah responds as clearly as he can in verse 8. He claps back with a big old fact check. You're making all of this up. Tell Sanballat that he's dreaming. How much that stopped the rumor mill, I don't know, but it doesn't stop Nehemiah's work. In verse 9, we're given the big plan behind all of this. It was to intimidate and frighten Nehemiah into dropping the work. Read, read with me again verse 9. For, all, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. See, Nehemiah's role was crucial. He was the leader. If he stopped pushing the work ahead on the wall, then the wall would not be finished. The scene then moves from outside opposition to an internal one. And we're introduced to a guy called Shemaiah, who for some, no, a priest named Shemaiah, who from, for some unknown reason is confined to his home, unable to leave. Nehemiah is visiting him and Shemaiah gives him a warning and an escape plan. He says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you at night. So the repetition there of coming to kill you increases the urgency of the situation. Nehemiah, you need to go into hiding ASAP. They are coming. They are coming. So Shemaiah offers sanctuary inside the sanctuary, inside the temple. But again, Nehemiah refuses. And he gives a two-pronged answer for why in verse 11. But I said, should a man as I, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. The first reason he gives for why he will not do this is that it will be cowardly for him to run. That ain't right. The second reason he says is that he can't go into the temple because it would be sacrilegious. Now, if you're a fan of the two-set violin boys online in their videos, you'll know that um, sacrilegious is their basic catchphrase. But here, this is deadly serious business. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was barred from entry into the inner sanctuary by the law. He knows that if he tries to hide in there, God would strike him down. You see, the temple is not like this church building. The presence of God does not live in this building. We do not enter the presence of God when we enter this church building this morning. But if you entered the temple, 
you would enter into the presence of God because the presence of God was literally there. And God says in his law that only representatives of the people can come into his presence and only if they have cleansed themselves in a ritualistic way and only then for a short time. The priests are the God-sanctioned representatives. You see, God is holy and that makes him unsafe. It is unsafe to be near him for unholy people. Nehemiah knows this. Hiding in the temple would not only be cowardly, but it would be profoundly sacrilegious. And so Nehemiah works out that Shemaiah has an ulterior motive. He was working for Tobiah and Sanballat, a priest for hire who had given him a dodgy warning and tried to trap him. What is the point of all this? Again, verse 13, read with me. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Again, it's to make Nehemiah afraid. So afraid for his safety that he would act unfaithfully towards God. Fear in this case is the opposite to faith. Fear would lead to sin. The sin of forgetting God's laws and ways. And also, if Nehemiah did run, it would ruin his reputation. And as the leader, that would crush his ability to lead the people and continue rebuilding the wall. And meanwhile, as all of that is happening, the nobles in Judah, the wealthy elite, had their own plan. We read in verse 18 that they had a pact with Tobiah. They had made an oath with him. How? In verse 18, we find out that it's by marriage. Tobiah had married one of their daughters and his son had married one of their other daughters. And this kind of intermarriage with foreigners, remember Tobiah is an Ammonite, will come up again later on in this book. This unholy alliance between the nobles and Tobiah doesn't go well for Nehemiah. In verse 19, they are spying on Nehemiah's work and reporting everything back to Tobiah. And they are also in the ear of Nehemiah, talking Tobiah up. This is what we call triangulation. You have a problem with someone, but instead of going them directly, you get a third party to do it for you. And then that third party also kind of acts as a cheerleader for the person who has the problem. Triangulation is bad. It is ungodly. But the goal of all of this is unsurprisingly clear. Verse 19. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters, probably through them, to make me afraid. Tobias sent letters via the nobles speaking in Nehemiah's ear. And all of that was to intimidate and instill fear into him. Fear, again and again. This verb keeps coming up through this passage. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong, fear can be actually a good thing. And it's an instinctive response to being threatened, right? It's not bad. In and of itself, it's not a bad thing. Uh, a while ago, I sent a video from our Facebook community group, the 4069 group, which involves Kenmore, Chapel Hill, and, and Brookfield. In it, a mother was filming in her living room, and she was with her family, and they were hearing some kind of rumble and tumble noises coming from the ceiling. And then, boom, two snakes crashed through the light fixture onto the floor, and they were wrestling. I think they were mating, right? What did the mother do? She didn't calmly invite her young children to come and for a closer look. 
With a frightened shriek, she told them to stay back. See, fear in of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, but fear can be used as a tool of the enemy against us, a means to a more sinister end. In Nehemiah's case, fear for his safety was being used as a tool to stop the work of God. Whether Sambalit and Tobiah really wanted to stop God's work or if they just didn't like the wall and were trying to flex their own power, the goal was the same. Stop the work on the wall that God had appointed Nehemiah to complete. Now, you might be thinking, it's just a wall. How important can that be? Is it as important as your life? Nehemiah? Well, the answer is yes, it's really important. God's promises sit on whether this wall is completed. See, God had promised through his prophets and even further back in the law that he would restore his exiled people. They would be a glorious people and a glorious city. And here is Nehemiah living in the ruins, among the ruins. Remember his tears all the way back in chapter 1. See, he knows that the city and its wall must be rebuilt. And the wall was necessary for the defense and safety of the people in the city. If there was no wall, people would not return to live there. No wall, no people. No wall, no city. No wall... No promises of God fulfilled. So Sambalit and Tobiah couldn't physically stop the wall from being built. The obvious target then became Nehemiah himself, and they threaten him on a number of levels. They say there are two responses to threats, right? Fight or flight. But Nehemiah could not fight them. The Persians would not have that. Nehemiah could not flee from them. That would have stopped God's work from, from, from finishing. He cannot fight. He cannot flee. So he must face his fears. But with what? Well, he faces his fears with fear. Not the fear of man, but the fear of God. Now, it was a question that was left hanging from last week. What does it mean to fear God? Here in our passage, we're not told directly that Nehemiah feared God, but he trusted God. He trusted him in prayer. He trusted God to judge and then carried on this faithful work of rebuilding. To trust God is an expression of what it means to fear God. So let us unpack how Nehemiah trusted God. First, Nehemiah prayed. He lifted up his fears Uh, to God succinctly and asked for help. Prayer is the ultimate expression of trust and reliance on God. Sambalit and Tobiah wanted to scare Nehemiah. For for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But those same hands they want dropped are strengthened by God in prayer. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. So instead of weakening and slowing down, the tiring hands building those walls are sustained. The soft skin of the jewelers is toughened up by drooping, uh, the drooping energy levels catch their second wind, all by the strength of God alone, and that strength secured through prayer. 
Nehemiah also prays that God would remember Tobiah and Sambalat, as well as other false prophets who conspired against him to make him afraid. Nehemiah prays that God would remember them. Another way of saying that he places vengeance and justice into God's hands. Nehemiah trusts that God will do this because he fears God's judgment. And I don't mean that Nehemiah is afraid that he will be judged, but he recognizes that judgment and wrath are God's ways of dealing with rebellion against God. Nehemiah knows this and he respects it. He understands that God is not safe. God is not harmless. He knows that God is powerful and you do not mess with him. Fearing God means treating him with appropriate reverence and here means trusting God's judgment and wrath will one day be satisfied. And so Nehemiah does not take vengeance into his own hands. In reverent fear, he leaves justice to God and he calls on God to remember how his enemies have treated him. And after his prayers, what does Nehemiah do? He gets on with the work. We read in verse 15 and 16 that the wall is finished and in record time, 52 days. If that sounds quick, it actually is. In Jerusalem today, there have been some archaeological digs at a site called the Ophel Hill. There are parts of this wall that Nehemiah built which have been found. And it's pretty clear that it was an amateurish job. This was not the work of master builders, but even so... It is important work and it has a profound effect. Have a look at verse 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, uh, the month of Elul, in, the, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So the enemies and other nations hear about this finished work and they respond in fear. They respond in fear. Or as Michael Scott from The Office would say, well, 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 how the turntables. Yeah. And yes, look, it's meant to be funny, right? Not, not just the meme, but we are meant to feel this kind of delicious irony in verses 15 and 16. See, after so much opposition seeking to create fear, they in turn experience it. They experience fear because they know that the work was finished with the help of God. The God who had seemingly been defeated in exile was back and was indeed powerful. And this God works great reversals. He will make afraid those who seek to frighten his flock. It's true here in Nehemiah. It's true at the end of time as well. This was Nehemiah's first project. He had his opponents. They wanted to scare him into stopping, but he feared God more than them. He trusted God and he got on with the work and finished it. And in the final part, in our final part, Nehemiah appoints faithful men to guard the gate. The singers and Levites have been appointed. The worship of Israel was in place and ready to go, but security was needed. So what does, who does Nehemiah turn to? And the answer is his brother, we met Hanani all the way back in chapter 1. Hanani was the messenger who brought the bad news of how Jerusalem was. And here he is, all these months later, still by Nehemiah's side. I really like this kind of fitting full circle for Hanani. He was there reporting the broken down wall. And here he is, present when the wall is complete. 
And he turns also to Hananiah, who has one particularly outstanding character quality. Have a look at seven, chapter 7, verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. This is the final mention of the verb fear in our passage, but this time it's in clear contrast to the rest of the passage. There is a fear of man and there is a fear of God. And only those who fear God will overcome their other fears. So these two men are put in charge, but the passage doesn't quite end on a high note. The wall is finished, the fears are overcome, but there's a note right at the end that things are not all quite well. It ends on a slightly worrying note, verse 4. The city is wide and big, but the people inside are few. No houses have been rebuilt. The wall is finished, but the city is empty. What will Nehemiah do? We'll come back to that question next week. For now, what we've seen in our passage here is the failure of the enemy's attempts to derail the work of God. They threaten Nehemiah and aim to make him scared enough that he would turn his back on his job, scared enough to stop pushing the wall's completion. But that plan failed. Not because Nehemiah was so courageous in of himself, it failed because Nehemiah trusted God more. The fear of God overcame the fear of man. Nehemiah would be right to be afraid for his life, but he feared God more, and that kept him faithful. That is the essence of the message from Nehemiah, and it's actually a message that resonates through the Bible to this very day. See, 500 years after Nehemiah, an entire church would be put into a similar situation. Facing the potential of losing their lives, their feet started to falter. Jesus knew that. And he saw in this church a need of encouragement. Now, we preached through these churches not too long ago, so definitely head to our church website to check out the sermons on Revelation 1 to 3. But to cut a long story short, Jesus saw in this church in Smyrna, he saw this church and he gives them a simple message with a profound promise. He says, do not be afraid of the suffering you are about to face because you follow me, but be faithful even unto death. It's a simple message and a massive call. You see, following Jesus is actually not that complex. But it is hard. It's hard because he calls you to lay down your life for him, to deny yourself, to put him as the first and greatest priority in your life. And that's hard when the promotion with more hours, is, uh, more hours away from home is on offer. That's hard when the money and the financial security are on offer. That's hard when the non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend is a potential option for a lonely heart. That's hard when you want to have more me time, but there are many areas of service in church needing help. Jesus says that if you follow me, you will kill your personal desire for your personal wants. And you will reorient your life around me. And that's hard. But it comes with a phenomenal reward. The crown of life. Eternal life, which isn't just about how long you have life for. It's not about the quantity of life. 
It's about the quality of that life. Eternal life means real, full, joy, overflowing life with Jesus. You see, this present life that you live is not the end goal. It is a spoonful, a taste of the feast to come. It's that little spoon of sauce that your mother gives you to try, to give you a little taste of the overflowing banquet that is about to come. Don't live for that little spoon. Live for the banquet. But that eternal reality is threatened by fear. Fear of people, fear for your safety, fear of whatever. Fear that leads you to compromise the work of God. To compromise the gospel because you're afraid of offending people. So you stay silent or you water it down. Or you compromise your life. You hide your gospel witness so you don't rock the boat. You blend in with everyone else. So what do you do with that fear? The key strategy is is not to belittle fear. You don't brush it off. You don't just say, stop being scared. Just stop it. The strategy is to take our eyes off what makes us afraid and place our eyes back on Jesus and God and the gospel. We don't fight We don't take flight, but we face our fears with another fear, the fear of God. See, God is taking care of us in Jesus. So whatever our fear is, whether it be for our safety, our significance, or our security, we can bank on the goodness of God in Jesus. In Jesus, there is eternal security in his protection eternal significance as his child. So what does it mean to fear God? I know that was a question that some of us were left hanging with from last week. To fear God means to recognise his power, to to respect it and to treat God with reverence. It is to remember that God is not safe in the sense that he's harmless, no, He can and has and will judge those who rebel against him. God is not safe, but he is good. And because he is good, you can trust him, just the way Nehemiah did. Maybe you're here today and you need to take that first step of simply trusting Jesus. The start of the Christian life begins there, to fear God for you, will be to trust Jesus with your life, to understand that not only is there no other way to be forgiven and saved, but that failure to trust Jesus or outright rejection of him will also lead to your rejection by Jesus. Now, that's full on. And we'd love to help you understand this more and help you make an informed decision. So please find out more. Speak with your friend who brought you here today or come up to the service and chat with me or Pastor Ben. Fearing God is the beginning of the journey. But for everyone else, we do not graduate on from that. So if you're a Christian here today, can I ask, who are you fearing? We've talked a lot about fear already, so let me flip to the other side of the coin and talk about our faithfulness to his work. 
If fear threatens the work of God, we overcome that fear by fearing God, and then you get on with the work. For Nehemiah, that meant finishing the building, uh, building the wall, and in the second half of the book to reform the people, and we'll continue that on as we go on in the coming uh, weeks in, in the book of Nehemiah. To carry on our work today is to be busy with building the kingdom of Jesus, to continue in our service to him. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we were challenged greatly with that. But how much have we actually just taken that on board? How much have we taken stock of our lives and worked out ways that we can serve more? Let's get on with the work. It's the work of our ongoing commitment to giving. We know that there are big plans ahead for our church. And a test for us in some ways is the second half of this year to not just simply meet the giving Requests the giving requirement, but to see if we can rise above the giving needed for next year. So let's get on with that work. Another area of work for us is our regular weekly participation in the life of church. I, I know that attendance is flagging in some areas. A lot of us are tired and sick. So let us find ways that we can serve you and for the rest of us. Let our hands be strengthened to meet together, to build and encourage each other. Let's get on with that work. I'm reminded here at the end of how quickly they rebuilt that wall, 52 days. And they did it with the help of God. And it was a bit of a janky build, an amateurish quality. But they weren't called to produce A-grade work. They were simply told to get on with it. And they did. And God used it to frighten their enemies. Remember that Jesus has promised to always be with us. He has promised that his kingdom will be built and nothing can tear it down. We participate in that work as well. And so when things go well, when churches are built and disciples are grown to his praise and glory, it is hard work, but 52 days is a short time. And for us, the work of building God's kingdom sometimes feels like long and hard work. But on the scale of eternity, it's a very, very short time. I imagine that for the soft hands, it felt like it was going to take forever to lay brick after brick. But it was over quickly. So in the blink of an eye, our life will pass. It's already September 2022. In the blink of an eye, another year has passed. Let us not waste these opportunities that we have now to be faithful to the work of the kingdom. There will be no regrets in serving Jesus. So let us pray that we will get on with the work, fearing him above all else. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today in fear and trembling. We know of your great power. We know of your judgment and wrath. We thank you and we are relieved that in Christ your judgment and wrath has been satisfied. But Father, help us to not take that for granted. Help us to not treat you flippantly. Help us to remember that you are not harmless but you are good. 
So in your goodness, help us to remember these things. Help us to fear you rightly. May that fear come out in trust as we pray to you and depend on you, as we leave justice into your hands, as we carry on with the work of building your kingdom. Father, help us to fear you rightly in these ways. Help us to think through ways that we might uh, grow in our trust and fear of you. For we ask all of these things for the building of your kingdom, for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.